Um, is that echoing just a little bit too much, the, the sound? It's fine, that's good, it was just my ears. <laughs> Lord, I just pray you'd add uh, understanding to the uh, reading of your word. And of course today we're going to start our, um, the second part of our journey through the book of Revelation. Uh, leading into Christmas, we worked our way through the, what's known as the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. That's chapter 1 to 3, which constitute the first vision that John had. And it was important for us to focus on them because one of the things it does is it grounds this most difficult of New Testament writings to a definite time and place. Revelation is a letter, like most of the other New Testament books, and it's written to a specific people in a specific uh, situation. In this case, to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey as they face difficult times and increased opposition and persecution from outside the faith. And John calls it a prophecy, uh, and while we may think of that being about foretelling what is to come, at the heart of the biblical understanding of prophecy is telling forth the word of God, that it's God's specific word for a specific time and place. John is applying gospel reality to the reality of the people living in those churches. And what makes it more difficult is that John calls it a revelation or an apocalypse, which is a literary style or genre, a little bit like science fiction or fantasy. And if you're not into science fiction or fantasy, you just wonder what the heck's going on. And that's like that for us, because this genre is foreign to us. And it's full, it's... Uh, you know, its message is presented through these vivid vi visions with all these symbols and images, uh, these weird and wonderful beasties, numbers which all have meaning, and where history is painted out on a cosmic stage and scale, not as a linear chain of events, which is how you and I experience it, but it's more p painting it large. Um, and and uh, it was a genre that, for the first century readers, they have, would have been more common and understandable. But for us, it's kind of like a code. And which has meant that this book has become a source of uh, a playground for idle speculation about what's happening in each and every time and place. It's become a place, it's become a, a, a book which has been used uh, to encourage fear-mongering. Maybe many of you were aware of, you know, the time when somebody would say, it's happening now, it's happening now, almost scaring people into the kingdom of God. And it's also been used for doomsday countdowning. But also, you know, it's a great source of encouragement and comfort to the church as down through the ages, they and we have faced difficult times, trouble from within, a trouble from without, similar to the ones that were faced by its first readers. And today we're going to look at chapter 4, which Gordon Fee says is possibly the greatest chapter in Scripture to preach on, so I hope I don't muck it up, as it gives us this amazing picture of the heavenly worship. Fee says it's only bettered by chapter 5, where we meet the Lamb of God, and Lorne has the honour of preaching on that one next week. No pressure, Lorne. 
It's the start of a new vision for John. In apocalyptic writing, words like, then I saw, and then it was shown to me, are ways of moving from one thing to another. A bit like scene changes in movies. And John starts here in verse 1 by saying, after this, referring back to his previous vision. A vision that starts in chapter 1 of the risen Jesus Christ, standing amidst the lampstands that represent the seven churches. As Jesus speaks to each of these churches, we have a sense of his presence, of his being with them. The focus is on the imminence of God. Emmanuel, God is with us. As Jesus said uh, in, in the end of Matthew's gospel, Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. The focus is on Christ amongst his people. In the midst of all that the church is facing from within, And outside, encouragement comes from the fact that the risen Jesus is with them, close by, and moving amongst them. It's the same for us as we deal with issues from within. Oh, sorry, let me, oh, I've skipped a whole lot there. (laughs) You know, as Jesus um, speaks to the seven churches, we have the sense of his presence, of his being with them. The focus is on uh, things like, you know, uh, that he knows their deeds. He sees what's going on. He's able to reward them for their perseverance. And even Laodicea, that church that seems to have pushed Jesus to the outside, it tells us that Jesus stands at the door of the city and knocks and wants to come in and dine with his people. And it's the same for us. Encouragement comes from the fact that the risen Jesus is with us, is close and moving amongst us. With and without the church. And you know, as we face issues like um, false teaching or unlove or persecution, finding ourselves being lulled to sleep, pandemics, you know, Jesus is with us by the Holy Spirit. He sees, He cares, He knows, He speaks, and He longs for us to repent and persevere. And He will reward us. And then John speaks of what he now sees. There's a door before him which leads to heaven. And he's called up into the heavenly throne room. And we may think that heaven is a long way away, out there beyond the physical galaxy. Uh, But here we see that it's right close by. In Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is in the temple and suddenly like being in a movie theater and the curtains are pulled back. Do you remember those days when they used to have curtains in movie theatres? And there's this amazing reality before us. You know, he has this, he is transported from the temple into the very throne room of God. It's right there, so close. Uh, For the Jews of his day, of course, that would seem natural as the temple was the place that God dwelt with his people. Ezekiel is an exile on the banks of the river Kabar when suddenly he suddenly finds the heavens open and he sees a vision of God's throne, yes, in Jerusalem, but moving from Jerusalem and coming to join the exiles in Babylon. Our Celtic forebears used to talk of thin places. They were usually associated with worship where the veil between the physical and the spiritual and the heavenly is very thin. And of course, the the cross is the thinnest of those places. But here we see that heaven is close by. 
And what is great and what is really encouraging is the places that seem to be thin places here. The island of Patmos, where John was imprisoned, is a thin place. Uh, for Isaiah, it was in Jerusalem, yes, but it was Jerusalem facing siege and military threat and where the, 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 the king was doing the wrong sort of thing. It was a thin place. God was there. Even the exiles in Babylon, God was there. Heaven was close. Even with us here and now, in our joys, in our sorrows, in the good times and the trials and the difficulties, heaven is near. We do not serve a distant, disinterested deity. And John is invited by Christ, the one with the voice like a trumpet from his initial vision, to come into the throne room and he will be shown what is to come. And it's interesting because what is to come is shown there in this first part of the vision by the worship of God. Ultimately, that is what is going to be what is to come. And so before we get to the, the events that are going to happen, uh, John gives us a, this vivid description of what he sees and what is going on in heaven. And you know, maybe like John, our eyes would have been drawn to the central figure on the throne. But John str struggles to describe what he sees when he looks there except the, for the fact that it's like precious jewels and there's light is shining through those jewels. And the three stones mentioned may have meaning or more likely they represent every precious stone. In Ezekiel 28:13, the king of Tyre is said to be covered by all the precious stones of the world and that's represented by the naming of the same th uh, stones that God is described like. The key image of course is of God as Paul describes him in 1 Timothy 6:16. 6, God dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen. Or can see. And in front of the throne in heaven are 24 lesser thrones, and on them sit 24 elders clothed in white with crowns upon their head. And the description of the clothes and the crowns bring us back to the promises of the letter of the seven churches, where those who, are, who overcome are seen as receiving a crown. And we've got the Winter Olympics on at the moment, and, and the image of a, a victor's wreath is what's implied there that they have won that they have come through the other side and they're dressed in white. In Roman society, again, that was victory. And uh, the 24 is seen as representing the totality of God's people. His Old Testament people, Israel, represented by the 12 tribes and his New Testament people by the 12 apostles. And John continues describing what he sees, and he sees a lampstand with seven. He sees a lampstand with seven lamps, which we are told represent the seven spirits of God. Now, don't worry, we haven't moved from being Trinitarian to being Decatarian. Oh, no, I'd be only nine, wouldn't it? Couldn't tell you what Ninetarian would be. What? Nonotarians. Okay, we're not. No, no, no. <laughs> Um, but there's, you know, it's, there's, there's much debate over what the seven spirits of God means. In Isaiah 11, which is the prophecy about the branch of Jesse, the coming of Jesus, it talks of the spirit being on this messianic figure in seven different ways. Likewise, in Romans, Paul speaks of the seven different ways the spirit ministers to God's people. 
And in the vision of the seven churches, we see the Spirit being shown by the lampstand to be with each of the seven churches. And seven, of course, in this mystical uh, sort of symbolism is also God's number, representing perfection. So we're supposed to realize that what here is God's spirit in its entirety, present before the throne. And John also sees, sees a crystal sea. It may be a reference to the sea or large bowl of water that was in the temple alongside the altar, part of the temple furniture that's described in 1 Kings 7. And uh, Isaiah does not mention it in his vision of the heavenly throne room because maybe for him it was simply part of the furnishings of the temple that you'd expect. And others wonder if this does not represent the sea, which in Jewish thinking was a force of chaos. In Daniel, it's out of the raging sea that these terrifying beasts arise. But here in the throne room of God, even this murky, chaotic force lies still and crystal clear before the throne of God. As a created thing, it serves its creator. And the last thing John sees before the action in heaven is described are four living creatures with eyes and wings that have different faces, one of an ox, one of a lion, another of a man, and the last of an eagle. And much of the symbols and things we see in Revelation are described and mentioned in the Old Testament. You know, uh, uh, John's first century readers would have been so steeped in the Old Testament that for them it would be like a reference. You know, and they would have all these things from Scripture would come to mind. Um, uh, so similar living creatures appear in Ezekiel's vision of the heavenly throne. And in that case, they each have those same four faces and a different number of wings. And of course, Celtic Christians have used these characters as symbols for the Gospels, uh, depicted in that wonderful illuminated book, the Book of Kells. That's, that's how they've almost tamed these creatures. But commentators see them as representing all living things before the throne. The ox are representative of the domesticated animals, the lion, of course, is the king of the wild beasts and represents the wild animals. The man reminds us that we too are creatures. We are created. And it actually humbles us. And the eagle represents the birds. Now, for the biologists amongst us, the Richard Attenboroughs amongst us, uh, we might say, hey, what about the fish and the insects? but it's very much a reflection of the Jewish worldview of the time. But here is creation, all the created beings before the throne of God, actively involved in worship. And that leads us from a description from what is around the throne of God to the worship that happens around the throne. The living creatures constantly worship God, saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The focus is on the transcendence of God. Holy God is totally other, separate in pure light. Spirit to be worshipped in spirit and truth, as Jesus says in John 4, in all his moral perfection. All powerful, 
The vision uh, we are looking at will go on to look at the rise and fall of the kingdoms and powers of this world, the actions of spiritual beings. But it starts first and foremost with the ascension that God is almighty. The eternal nature of God is also the center of this praise. You know, and we're so used to the idea of the God who was, who is, and will ever be, and we forget its amazing power and wonder. God has always been. He's the ancient of days. But it does not mean that God is stuffy and old-fashioned and stuck in the past. It means that God is here now, present, and reigning today. Amen. Yep, thank you. And as we face the future, we can do so with the assurance that God will continue to rule and reign into eternity. And whenever the living creatures worship, it tells us the elders fall to the ground, casting their crowns before him, and they worship as well. And you think we do a lot of standing and sitting in our services. <laughs> They're up and down all the time, which is great because it's a place where there's no more decay and no more sickness. So, you know, they're healthy enough to do it. And they say, you are worthy to receive glory, honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. And N.T. Wright reflects on the difference between the worship of the living beings and the representatives of the people of God, and he says that the difference is the word because. The psalm tells us we'll join all creation, all creation, to worship its creator. But the 24 elders, which represent the people of God, are the ones who worship with knowledge and reason. They see the power of God. They see his worthiness, that he has created all things. It's something about the way in which we are created for a relationship with God, that we can understand and see what God does. And so we can give him praise and worship out of that. That's the vision what we see, and the action that's described to us. But what does it say to us? Well, it points us to the sovereignty of God. As we start a vision of what is to come, we are drawn into the presence of God. God on the throne. And you'd think that as John contemplated what is to come, that we may have started with the Roman emperor on the throne. What is going to happen to God's people in Asia Minor is going to be dictated by Rome. However, here we see from the beginning and through to the end that the real power, the real control, the one whose purposes and plans and kingdom will reign is our Heavenly Father. The repeated name for God in this chapter is the one who lives forever and ever. It is in the worship of the living creatures. It's repeated as a name for God in verse 9 and 10. And it's what gives us encouragement and hope. Kingdoms and difficulties may rise and fall, and they do, and they will continue to, but God's rule and reign, God's kingdom, is eternal. It invites us to look up from what we see around us and to grasp a bigger picture, an internal perspective. As the book of Revelation goes on, we'll see that we live in this time between Christ's coming and his return. And that will be a time of difficulty and strife. But God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is able to keep us and bring about his purposes and plans. You know, um, Queen Elizabeth 
this week is celebrating a great milestone. She's been on the throne for 70 years. She's the longest reigning British monarch. Amazing. God bless her. But it too will come to an end. But God and God's reign is eternal. He is on the throne and will continue to be on the throne. Psalm 2 encapsulates this by talking of the nations raging against God. But you know what? God is simply amused. He tells us that his kingdom and his king will be established. We live in a time between the already and Jesus, God's kingdom is drawn near and the not yet, awaiting its final consummation. But we live with the hope and the assurance that God is on the throne and is working out his plans and purposes. As I came back to work this year, I came back with a sense of dread. Almost, you know, it was just going to be another COVID year. And this season we find ourselves in is, is a difficult season. It's a hard season. It's not one that God's people haven't dealt with in the past. It's not one that God's people won't deal with again in the future. And in my scripture reading for that first week, which I shared in my pastoral letter, was Psalm 62. And as the psalm turns to encourage his readers to have trust and hope in God, the same trust that he has even when he faced difficult times, he says he knows these two things about God. He has heard God say that power belongs to him and that with God is constant love. In the first two visions in Revelation, as God's people are to be, God's people are to be encouraged by, by both of these things. God is close and with us in Christ as we face challenges as individuals in a community of faith. And as we see the movement of wider, wider history, we know that God is eternal and all-powerful and sovereign, and it gives us hope. It doesn't. As we move on and look at all the weird and wonderful and frightening things in Revelation, we need to hold on to that truth. This is an image of what is to come. We do not fear what is to come in this book. As we live out our lives in the midst of pain and suffering, uncertainty, change, we do so without fear. Because Christ is with us as we face those difficult times. And God is sovereign. In the uh, civil rights movement, they are able to face all sorts of difficulties and persecution and violence and even death by fixing their eyes on the prize. And we have that in this vision of heavenly worship, of all creation joining together and worshipping God on the throne. Amen? Amen. Amen.